O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. Many years ago, even close to 40 years ago now, I was in seminary. And I remember at some occasion having a, a situation I had to deal with involving someone else. I needed to decide how to respond to the person. And I, I had some sense of direction, but I knew that if I did what seemed to be the right thing, that it had a certain risk that went with it. <clears throat> and the risk, <clears throat> excuse me, the risk was on that level of, of emotional risk and potential embarrassment for myself. If I did this, I might be, I might be hurt. I might even be humiliated. And so I was a little bit cautious about going ahead in that direction. And I was praying about things and turned to a friend, a classmate whom I knew to be really serious about listening to God. And I asked him if he would meet together with me. We'd set aside an hour in prayer just to listen. And I apologized. I couldn't give him details because it was somewhat confidential. But could he just pray and listen for what God might say? The fact is, over the years, I've often, in praying with people, been given direction when I knew nothing about the circumstances. Maybe an image, maybe a word, and I've shared that with the person, and invariably, even if I have no idea what it's about, the other person does. So we listened together. At the end of our hour, my friend said, I haven't heard anything. What about you? And I said, all that I get is you already know what you're to do. And he said, well, do you? And I said, I guess so. And so I did what seemed to be that right direction. And exactly what I feared would happen happened. And I felt just really stomped upon. I felt hurt. I felt frustrated and angry, particularly angry with God. And I remember in my residence room, just railing against God, saying, you set me up, you duped me. You knew what was going to happen. I was trying to follow your will. I know I was doing what you gave me to do, but you set me up. I feel like such a fool. You duped me, Lord. And then I just stopped. And I thought, I've heard these words before. Over the weeks previous to that, I had been reading through the Old Testament, and particularly in the prophets, and I'd been reading Jeremiah. Uh, I had acquired for the first time the New American Bible as a translation, one that I don't recommend, but <laughs> I hadn't encountered it before, and that's what I was reading from. And when I went back, sure enough, Jeremiah 20, verse 7, reads in that translation, you duped me, Lord, and I allowed myself to be duped. And it took all the wind out of my sails. I thought, these aren't my words, these are Jeremiah's words. Or he's giving voice before I've even spoken them to what's going on in my life, what was going on in his. And I looked at the passage in context and I recognized the frustration of Jeremiah because he was speaking the word that the Lord gave him. And he had to say again and again, it's a hard word. People don't want to receive it. So they reject me. They beat me up. They throw me in pits. 
They leave me to die. Lord, I've had it. You keep setting me up in this fashion. I'm done. I decided I'm not going to speak his word anymore. But that word was like a fire shut up in my bones. I could not keep it in. I could not not speak it. And I think we misunderstand if we imagine that Jeremiah was saying, well, if I didn't do it, God was punishing me by burning me. I think he was saying that the word that I have is God's cleansing fire. It's his refining fire. It's his word to his people that they need to hear. And I know I have to speak it. St. Paul would, would kind of echo that later, saying, woe be to me if I do not preach the gospel. Well, I found this again and again in Scripture, that the very words, the very thoughts, the very feelings, when I'm angry with God, when I'm frustrated, when I feel let down, when I feel some despairing, when I can't feel God's presence so clearly, that those words are all there, those reflections are all there in Scripture. Some of you know that I often will turn you back to the Psalms with that reminder that in the Psalter you have pretty much the whole range of human emotions, the whole range of things in our relationship with God. And one of the really striking things is is that when the psalmist or, if you like, one of the prophets is in a place where he can't feel God's presence, when he's frustrated with God, he yet takes it up with him. Think of a really notable psalm, Psalm 22. The one that begins with the absolute God-forsakenness of the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And are so far from the voice of my cry. You know, in the nighttime I cry out to you and you do not hear. You have the one who doesn't feel God's presence at all. But he cries out to the God who ought to be there whom he's confident should be there and would be there, but he can't feel that presence, and he doesn't know why. I regularly tell people, you need to read the whole psalm, you need to press on, you need to wrestle with the psalmist to get to that point where, in that psalm at verse 21, you get the turning, the changing of the tone of the psalm. He's gotten as low as he can, right down into the depths of death. And then comes the line, you have heard me. It reads differently in different translations, the context of that. But the psalm changes there. Of course, we know when we hear those words that those two are echoed. They're echoed not just elsewhere in the word of God, but on the very lips of the living and incarnate word of God. On the cross, Jesus cries out, Eloi. Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't believe we're to hear those words from the cross without that psalm and without the fullness of the psalm. At the same time, I think we are to know that just as Scripture gives voice to our own struggles, and at times the depth of our frustration, our fear, our sense of despair as well as the voice of praise, then on the cross we have Jesus giving voice, but not just through one of his servants, but in the word made flesh, in God with us. 
to the depths of our own despair. He's giving voice to the, well, to the most heartfelt cry of the whole human race. Jesus on the cross is without sin. And yet we affirm in the Apostles' Creed that he was crucified, died and was buried. He descended into hell. And I know that modern translations, some of them will say he descended to the dead. And it's fair, Hades, that was there in the Greek, the place of the dead. But I will continue to argue that we need to understand that while he would not go to hell because of his sins, that as he took upon himself the fullness of our sins and that weight, he did let it carry him down to a place that's best called hell because it's the place of absolute God-forsakenness. It's the place where we see nothing but darkness. We can't see the light of God at all. The deepest steps that we can go down to the Lord descends to because there is nowhere, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Psalm 139, one I often point to, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, in hell, in the place of the dead, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, let only darkness cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. There's something about knowing that the Scripture gives voice to our deepest cries, more profound that the Word made flesh enters into that and in the depths of His darkest moment, which is also the great victory of the cross, He gives voice to that cry that is the absolute dereliction of those bound in sin. Not that it might end with Him in the grave, but in the very depths of the grave, in the very depths of hell that the cry of his victory might resound that confidence that we are not forsaken, we are not alone. I think about is Elijah, whom we've been remembering so recently. You remember the great prophet Elijah and his point of despair, finding himself sent to Mount Horeb to meet God, to be encountered in the cave and in the still small voice there. For the Lord said to him, you're not alone, Elijah. You're not the only prophet left. You're not the only voice of the Lord. I've reserved 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. A meeting with that prophet in his, his despair in the point where he feels most alone, most God forsaken. The Lord has not forsaken him. The Lord meets him there. It's the mystery of the gospel. It's the good news that is ours in Jesus Christ. It's what St. Paul has in mind as he begins Romans 12. We've got it in our bulletins where the scripture is printed because I set it up that way. And what we heard read from the lectionary, they left out the word therefore, which is critical at that point 
in Romans 12. We just got, I appeal to you, brethren, by the mercies of God, or however it was worded exactly. I've got different translations in my head. Not the New American Bible isn't one of them, but (laughs) certainly the Book of Common Prayer and King James Version. But Paul begins chapter 12 drawing on everything that he's been discussing. He has that little Greek word, un, which can be translated as therefore or then, accordingly. The sense is this follows from everything I've been telling you. Given what God has done, given the depth of his mercy, here's to be your response. Now, I'm not going to take the time to go back through all of Romans, but Romans is worth reading as a whole. Unlike Paul's other letters where he's responding to different concerns of the communities he knows, in Romans he's not been there. What he does is he sets out actually a treatise. It does flow as he goes along. But just as a capsule version of what he's been saying to that point, he begins with the state of the human race, with what we've needed, where we are under God's wrath, the judgment that is there because those created in God's image and likeness, created for life in him, have turned from him. And particularly, we have chosen to turn away and worship, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And first, he says, because of that, because of the persistence in sin and turning away from God, God gave them up to the consequences of sin. The Greek verb that is there is paradidomi. And just hold on to that as best you can. That's that sense of being delivered, being given over, being given up. He repeats it three times at that point. We've been given over to the consequences of sin, but God didn't let go. In fact, he says there's revelation in the creation of the Creator to call us back. Then there's the revelation in His law to set out God's desire to diagnose what the problem is so that we might see what we need to do. But then in the Gospel, He's given the graces that we need to actually be restored. And it's at that point that He says that in light of everything else, God delivered up, gave over Jesus to die for our salvation, to be raised for our justification. Unfortunately, if you're reading in the Revised Standard, the Second Catholic Edition, or just the Revised Standard, so our lectionary, it says simply that he delivered him up to to die for us, or he gave him, or Christ died for us. I think that's the wording. And they don't use the word delivered at that point. But it is paradidomy again. We've been given over to the consequences of sin. We're separated from God, but God doesn't let go of us. He therefore delivers Christ to the consequences of our sin, that he might suffer and die for us to open the way of reconciliation. He repeats it again in chapter 8, the sense of him being given over, being delivered up for us. He then will talk about how we lay hold of that. You know, what God has done in Christ, how we lay hold of that, how we need the gift of the Holy Spirit for that new life in us. And chapters 9 through 11, 
I'm not going through all of Romans, but I'm sort of going through all of Romans. But he talks about how this grace, this good news, extends not just to the people who were given the law, not just his covenant people through whom the Christ came, but to all nations who will receive what he's got. As he delivers up Christ, we who would receive that good news, we too might be joined into his promises, might have that new life in him. And so when he begins chapter 12, he says, therefore, given all of that, in view of the mercy of God, given what he has done for us, the appropriate response is that we would give up ourselves in turn to him. Now, sadly, if you're following the Greek, he doesn't use the verb paradidomi again, but the sentiment is there. That's what he's describing when he says that he beseeches us to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I love that he talks about the yielding of the bodies because it's that really sacrificial offering of the daily lives. It's a really practical offering. It's not just in my heart saying yes to Jesus. It's actually laying down my life for him, entering into that life with him, giving over the sacrifice of the daily off, well, the daily offering of whatever I do. Jesus will talk in the gospel about this very thing. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. It's the very word that St. Paul has, that we enter into that life, that we receive the gift, that we respond by letting go of ourselves and taking hold of him. It's that sacrifice of prayer. It's that sacrifice of worship. Interesting, if you've got the, uh, the prayer book of the King James in your head, you'll hear that 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 sacrifice, the offering of your bodies, that that's, that's your reasonable service. Whereas what we heard is that's your spiritual worship. One of those interesting times in, in the Greek, it's, it's logikain latreia, is this expression in Greek, and logikos, and things to do with logic. We think about the reason. We think about what's right and true. Properly for the ancients, the things of of sanctified reason are the things of the Spirit, the things of the offering of the true person to God. And Latreia is is service, it's ministry, but traditionally it has to do with the offering in worship, the the ministry in the service of worshiping God, of worshiping the gods. So the idea that the same expression, you know, it's, it's what's right to do. If you go back to where I began... I was looking to do what was the right thing, to do what God wanted me to do. It didn't go the way that I would like, although all these years later I can say that the fruits were there in the life of the other person. And of course I worked it through with God and I'm embarrassed. I humiliate myself every now and again and I I get over it. And The Lord lifts me up and it probably makes me better for all of that. The calling of the Lord to give ourselves wholly to him because he first gives himself wholly to us. We give him even our despair and our frustrations because he's entered in 
strangely giving voice to those things that they might be raised up to the Father. That we might know that God hears us in those very times when we least can feel His presence. We can least know that He's really with us. That the Word of God, the Word made flesh, enters into the depths then, is there in the midst of our darkness, bringing the light that shines in darkness that cannot be overcome, cannot be put out. In the light of all of that, Paul says, we need to receive His grace and respond by giving all of ourselves in turn. He was in the world, and the world was made by Him, and the world knew Him not. He came unto His own, and His own received Him not, but as many as received Him. To them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship.